Well, in our study, the, uh, the themes of godliness and honor have been woven throughout the last few weeks uh, of the study. And both themes uh, continue on in our study today. And so therefore, I've given this message the exhilarating title, More on Honor and Godliness, all right? Um, and because that's where Paul remains, and there's a bit more to reflect on uh, in how we show honor to each other and how we pursue godliness. So honoring others and the pursuit of living in a way that represents God well. That's how we've defined godliness, right? Living in a way that represents God well. They may not always be the most exciting pursuits in life, but it is always the right thing in life. And it's always right because it is the way we glorify God. Perhaps you've heard, maybe even memorized at some point, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31, which says simply, whether you eat or drink or whatever it is you're doing, do it all to the glory of God. And I've had some people look at me after, you know, kind of walking through that verse and just kind of going, what even is that, right? I mean, what does it mean to glorify God? Well, the good news is, is that this is the question that all of Scripture answers for us. And we could look at a very specific response of Jesus to a question, what is the greatest command, and find uh, a way of answering that question as well. What does it mean to glorify God? What did Jesus say when he was asked, what's the greatest command? He said, to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength and to love your neighbor as yourself. He kind of summarized it all with those two commands, to love God with everything that you are, right, and to love others as you love yourself. And so as we think about honoring, right, we can think, man, everything about what it means to glorify God will come back to these two foundational truths, loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving your neighbor as yourself. Now, godliness, right, again, living in a way that represents God well, involves your thoughts, involves your actions, involves your words, engaging in the question, are they Christ-like? Are they like God? And by the power of the Holy Spirit and because of the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, we can pursue godliness. And as we contemplate more and more the, the love and grace of God shown to us, His undeserved mercy and kindness, it compels us, right? That's what compels us to love God in return. It's not a sense of duty or a have to or some kind of religious obligation to God. No, it's a, as we examine the gospel, as we, as we grasp more and more of what God has done for us in sending his son Jesus, the grace that he shows to us in every aspect of life, it compels us to love God in return. So godliness, honoring God, glorifying God by loving him. And then to honor someone is an expression of sacrificial love, right? Modeled, modeled faithfully, so beautifully by Jesus himself. And so to love your neighbor as yourself, to honor someone, is a way of glorifying God. And honor because everyone is created in the image of God. Why, why does the scripture repeatedly, we looked at it more thoroughly last week, of how the, the, the theme of honor is all throughout the word. In fact, there's such kind of all-encompassing statements like honor everyone. Right. So why, why is honor such a big deal? Because we're all created in the image of God. Uh, Male and female, equally so, right? In the image of God. And so why we honor, what's the motivation for showing honor? Because that person 
is also created in the image of God. And we are called to honor everyone. And Paul has been zeroing down in a couple of very specific aspects of honor, right? Honoring widows, honoring elders who lead well, we looked at uh, as well. And so chapter 6 is a new chapter, but it's not necessarily a new theme. Let's see what he says in verses 1 and 2. It says, Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor. Everybody say all honor. That sounds pretty... all-encompassing, doesn't it, right? All honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Teach and urge these things. So, the, the, the theme of a yoke, right, the image of a yoke, this metaphor is used in the Bible. It represents the joining of one to another, right, such that the two things joined have to go everywhere together. If you're yoked to someone or something, you can't go a separate way. Of course, the agricultural use of of yoking two oxen together to work a field is the most common way we see a yoke uh, a visual image of it, right? The, the oxen share the load by pulling together to get the work done. Now, in the scriptures, we see yoke is used both in negative and positive ways. In fact, Jesus used the image of a yoke himself. In Matthew chapter 11, verse 29, he says, uh, to take his yoke upon you. Why? Because you'll find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy and, and my burden is light, Jesus says. So we are to, in a sense, team up with Jesus, right? To live life uh, thinking of ourselves yoked with Jesus and realizing, man, who better to be yoked to, right? I mean, the the fact that he will carry on and that he and his faithfulness will will help you in that journey of, of, of living life to the praise and glory of God. So yoking together with Jesus is one way we see that image used. And then in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, we're told this, to not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness? So there's a clear caution for us of not joining in or yoking together with unbelievers in, in, in some manner, so that, you know, we, because as an unbeliever and a believer, right, there's times where your life is going to be lived very differently, and, and if you're yoked together for some reason, then, then that uh, can't happen because of that, that relationship. And so uh, we see it used in all kinds of ways. Here, Paul uses the image of a yoke to speak of the relationship that a bondservant has with his or her master. Now, a bondservant in the Roman Empire, right, the time in which this was written, uh, was someone officially bound under contract to serve his master for a period of seven years. And when that time was done, they would be paid, they would be declared free. Now, for the English standard Uh, translation of the Bible, which we most often use for our teaching and preaching here, the translators uh, took the single word, Greek word, doulos, and have translated it three different ways to try and uh, discern in the context of what type of of servants um, is being talked about. One way is this bondservant, someone temporarily under the ownership of another to pay off a debt or, uh, you know, to, to, to build uh, some manner of wealth for themselves for living. 
They also would translate it at times as slave, which is a term absolute ownership. Whether someone was born into that relationship or whatever it was, uh, that's the way that they translate it as well. Then they translate it also as servant for someone who has much more freedom in the midst of this relationship with a master. Now, a person was a bondservant voluntarily or often involuntarily. Um, They were under the ownership of another. And so they were yoked together in life in that way. And we know throughout history and in most every part of the world, including the United States, you know, we know slavery has existed. Without question, uh, there are horrific stories of a master-slave relationship, those stories in which uh, one was devalued or abused or taken advantage of, and, and those stories reveal the sinful nature of our hearts. It reveals our tendency to use power and authority to exploit another for our own benefit. So there are negative examples for sure, but there are also some uh, good uh, examples of that kind of relationship, Um, an owner-master relationship, one providing for the living needs of another in an honorable and respectful way, and those are pleasing to God. Uh, And so we have both good and bad examples of slavery in the Bible. Now, in fact... We have a whole book of the Bible called Philemon in which Paul writes uh, to a man named Philemon who, uh, in saying to him, listen, I'm sending one of your servants back to you. And, uh, and Paul encouraging Philemon to receive him well, to treat him as a brother in Christ, which is the greater relationship. So from this, I, there's just two things I want to, to pull forward as we continue. First of all, it's important to note that Paul is addressing this kind of relationship. Um, here he addresses the bondservant and how to relate to his master. Um, and one of the most challenging relationships that, that uh, one could face. And so we have to ask the question, uh, as we are reading this today, right, in the 21st century, we might ask ourselves the question, what's the correlation? I mean, I don't know that any of you are in a kind of master-servant relationship. Uh, So what's our correlation today? What's the context for us? And although a bondservant relationship with his or her master is not a direct correlation, I believe we can certainly draw application to an employer and employee relationship for us today. There is not ownership per se, but an employee contract with an, is an agreement to yoke together to accomplish whatever the particular task is of the job. And so today that's part of the application that we want to draw from this text. How do, we, how do we honor those who are responsible for us in kind of a work environment? The word tells us, let all who are under a yoke of, of bond servants or employees, right, regard their own masters, or we could say employers, as worthy of all honor. Worthy of all honor. And so honor one another, right, is, is this whole theme we've been looking at the last few weeks. Honor widows, honor elders, and now Paul says, honor your employer. And I know perhaps your first objection might be, well, what about them, Right? What about the employer, right? And there's certainly places in Scripture that address how a master or an employer is to treat those who are under them as well. And so we look at this dynamic today, and and the question would be, why would Paul encourage Timothy with such a thing? To encourage with all honor? To encourage a bondservant to even perhaps toward a master who was not uh, honoring 
um, themselves, right, as someone who is abusing and taking advantage of, why would he encourage, even within that context, to, to encourage them to show honor? Well, he says, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. So that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled or slandered. So that's the reason, the name of God, right? To, to guard the name of God, to guard the teaching that is, is the teaching of who God is, that sound doctrine that we have been talking about. And so honoring others, even someone who perhaps takes advantage is God-like, and, and there are many challenging scenarios with that. I fully get that. Um, but this is the gospel, isn't it? I mean, this, as we look at our lives and we, and we examine the challenge of what it is to honor someone, perhaps even someone who has mistreated us, here's the question. Did, did God wait for you to deserve Jesus? Here's how the scripture puts it, right? I mean, Romans 5, 8, but God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still, you know, disobeying God and, and not honoring him and at times, throwing it very much in his face as humanity. Like, we, like God sent his son to die for you in that condition. That's the gospel. So here's what I think we can, a bit of takeaway we can have in this, that we need to understand that, that, that helps inform our action of honoring. And that is this, that every interaction you have with someone, anyone, is like a building block in their view of what God is like. Have you ever thought about it that way? Every interaction you have with someone, doesn't have to be even employer, employee, it can be husband, wife, it can be friend, it can be coworker, whatever. Every interaction you have with someone is like a building block in their view of what God is like. Because to them, especially to those that don't know Christ, to them, when you say you're a Christian, you represent God to them. That's what we mean by godliness. That's why we, when we are to pursue, we are to pursue a life that represents God well. Here, Paul's saying to Timothy, like, listen, uh, make sure you show honor because why? So that the name of God and the teaching, the, right, the teaching of God may not be reviled. Now, there may be times when people reject God because they're angry with him about something that has happened in life. That is certainly true. But I think more often the objection that we hear to Christianity is because someone has seen someone who claimed to know Christ or was a Christ follower who certainly didn't live a life representing God well. Now, we don't expect ourselves to be perfect people by any means, right? But the pursuit of godliness... Right? When, when someone says, nah, I don't want anything to do with Christianity, I've, I've seen people who say they're Christians and then they, you know, treated, I was just, I was at a, here's one, I was at a restaurant the other day and um, it's sad to say, once again, the, and it came up, the lady asked us if, um, it was a group of guys and, and she asked if we were pastors and um, I was the only pastor among us, and so, um, so we chatted for a bit, and she said, you know, I just am grateful. Thank you for being so kind. She said, um, at times we have groups come in here that we know are uh, Christians, and nobody wants to serve them. That, just, that was just said to me the other day, right? Now, that's an example of an interaction 
Something as simple as having a meal and how you treat the person that serves you, it's building in their minds their perspective of God. Am I making sense? So we have to live life in such a way that says, man, every interaction, and, and I realize that, like every interaction, like, yeah, but don't, like, don't take it as a weight. Take it as a way of saying, boy, there's a responsibility, and it's a humbling thing to realize, God, I get to represent you, and I want to do that well, and so help me, even in, in some of the most simple interactions with people, to, to handle it in such a way that they, it builds within them a mindset. If they, if they ever find out or if they know that I'm a Christian, that they like give praise to you. And that it helps them understand who you are. So, listen, when, you, when we got to close kind of this Sunday to Monday gap, as some refer to it as, right? What you do on Sunday, why you come on Sunday, is absolutely every bit as important as what you do uh, throughout the week. Or what you do throughout the week is, what you, is just as important as what you do here on Sunday, right? We live lives of worship. We live lives that give praise to God. So, when you go into going, kind of coming back to this employer-employee relationship thing, when you go into the HR office... Uh, to discuss something, right, uh, or you go, students in the room, you go to a teacher to discuss a grade or an assignment that you're not real happy about, your first and primary focus is this. It ought to be our prayer going in. Father, help me to represent you well. That's the first and primary issue. My, cha- my paycheck, your paycheck is not the primary issue. Your health insurance benefit is not most important. Demanding your rights is not most important. Proving your right is not most important. Your grade or your GPA is not most important. What is most important is what the person will think about God because of the way you, as a follower of Christ, honored them and interacted with them. That's what's most important. And I know that can be difficult. Um, I mean, how do you honor someone who maybe you believe is lying to you about the situation, right? Yeah, hard questions. In the midst of those hard questions, our first pursuit is always, God, help me to honor you by honoring them in whatever that is. And that doesn't mean you can't speak truth. It means you do so in a, in a respectful manner. It doesn't mean you, you can't, you know, honestly share your opinion. It just means you do so in, a, in an honorable fashion. Uh, scripture tells us anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. So being careful, right, uh, of where we go with things. Um, so honoring them. And here's the foundational piece of that or truth of that is that your earthly boss is not your true master. Right? Your earthly boss is not your true master. You serve Christ, Colossians 3.23. Whatever you do, work heartily. As for the Lord and not for men, right? Your heart and what you do day in and day out in your job, uh, as your home with kids perhaps, whatever responsibility you find in the midst of your week, right? Just as we would say our first pursuit here as we gather is to glorify God together, to honor him together, to rejoice in, in our salvation together. Then when you go out on Monday, absolutely, it's the same thing, right? You work heartily as for the Lord, not for men. Romans 12 puts it this way, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. 
Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And this is, what, this is the life of, of a Christian, right? God, God typically takes what we most naturally want to do in the, in the sinful nature of our hearts, and he turns it upside down. So it says in verse 20, to the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Right? That's the heart of honoring someone um, in life. In verse 2, uh, Paul draws a bit of distinction. It seems the first of showing honor could be to those even who are non-believing masters. Verse 2, he says, those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Teach and urge these things. So, what's he saying? Those who have believing bosses or employers in our context, honor them because they are brothers and sisters. Don't be disrespectful. And that, that word right there is, is not just a word that, that communicates action. It's a heart attitude. It's, it's a heart that says, even when I'm not around that manager or whatever, I'm going to honor them by being careful of what I say about them. Right? It's not just doing what they say begrudgingly. It's doing what they say in a way that is to the Lord and not to them. And when you get into the break room with others, it's not about now then having the opportunity of bad-mouthing that person that's disrespectful. And Paul says, don't, don't be disrespectful. Right? Honor them in the role that God has given to them in your life. In fact, those who have believing uh, bosses, brothers, sisters who are over us in the Lord, in the work environment, serve all the better. Uh, in other words, our brother-sister relationship supersedes the earthly dynamic of boss and employee. And I think Scripture even tells us that brother-sister relationship in Christ is, is greater than uh, our earthly relationships as, as uh, parent and child and as uh, husband and wife even. That's why Scripture tells us marriage is not part of heaven. Why? Because our greater relationship for eternity is, is our unity as the family of God, as the bride of Christ, as, as brother-sister in Christ, not as husband and wife. Um, so serve all the better those who are over you and believers. Um, reminds me of Galatians 6 when it says, And let us not grow weary in doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone. There it is. And especially to those who are of the household of faith. So a similar encouragement by Paul there to the church in Galatia. Do good to everyone and have a particular place in your heart for those who are brothers and sisters in Christ. Um, so at the end of verse 2, Paul says, general kind of looking back. On these things, teach and urge these things, right? Continue to press into these things. Then he returns in verse 3 to kind of the, the aspect of false teachers that we have studied some before in this letter. Verse 3, if anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for the quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, 
and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. So Paul addresses those who, in a sense, elevate themselves above Jesus in a sense of pride. Did you catch what he said there in verse 3? Anyone who teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ. So these are those who were teaching things contrary to what had been given through uh, the Apostle Paul and others as what is of sound doctrine. Uh, Those who have an unhealthy craving. Uh, those who want to create drama or create a context of disagreement just simply for disagreement's sake, right? Um, those who thirst for knowledge instead of thirst for God, making knowledge kind of an, an end-all, be-all kind of thing. Um, that if they can stir up enough controversy and dissension, and in that context somehow give the, the, the idea that they are the ones knowledgeable, they are the ones that know what you know, truth is and all of that, that, that then that, that false display of godliness will bring gain in their life. And Paul says that's, that's, a, that's a wrong motive. Right? Don't pursue that. Instead, verse 5, the contrast, but, but godliness with contentment is great gain. Not this godliness that, that is pursuing gain and wanting more and more, so I'm going to cause disruption and you know, look like the one that knows what's going on so I can somehow gain for myself in that way. But, but no, godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, he says, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. So godliness with contentment is great gain. What is contentment? Some have Stated this way, confidence in God's adequate provision. That's contentment. To live with this sense of trust, with confidence, with assurance in God's adequate provision. That God has promised to care for his children and God will do so. That he promises to never leave us nor forsake us. He promises to, uh, if we seek first the kingdom of God, the gospel of Matthew, that sermon on the mount, right? Seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added unto you. The food and clothing, the necessities of life that God has promised to do and to care for us in such a way. The apostle Paul was one who learned of what it meant to be content. um, And that's exactly uh, a principle we need to understand Being content is not just a flip-the-switch kind of thing. Being content in life, right? Pursuing godliness, representing God well in this world with a heart of contentment in what God has blessed you with, um, that's something we learn. That's that's why we, again, call around here this following Jesus thing we call a journey because on a journey you you learn different things along the way. You grow as you go. And and contentment is one of those things we all have a need to grow in. Why? Because discontentment is what is most common in our sinful nature. To want more, to be envious of what someone else has, uh, you know, to not be thankful. Uh, That is what comes most natural. So this contentment thing is something we have to learn and grow in. 
Paul says in Ephesians 4, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Right? So godliness with contentment is great gain. There's a sense of peace and rest that comes in a life of contentment that is rooted in godliness. Now, Philippians 4.13, you've heard this perhaps in many different contexts. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. That's not about winning an athletic event or something of that nature. Right? The context of it is about learning to live life with contentment. Right? Godliness with contentment. I can, I can do all things. I can live with plenty and abundance because I know that that comes from God and I will honor him with whatever that wealth is and I can learn to, to be content with little and with less because that too is of God and I can, I can be content. I can do all things. I can, be, I can be godly in every circumstance of life. I can be content through him who strengthens me. So part of the principle from this context for us is that you should never pursue godliness out of motive for gain. You should never pursue godliness. Like, don't ever pursue even a form of godliness out of a means of gain for yourself. That's, that's not honoring to the Lord, right? Paul says, desiring to gain, to be rich is full of all kinds of temptation and eventual ruin. That's the subtle root of pride and selfishness, which is not godly. And I will, I'll give you an example because it, the Lord, I just felt he put it on my mind this week as I was preparing and it kept coming up. And so it's a pretty specific example uh, to maybe some of you in the room who have a job like this, uh, but the, just the principle is for all of us um, to receive. Uh, I have heard at times in the past and not just here while we've lived in Plymouth, but just in generalities uh, in the church, is that for those in particular who either have uh, own a business or uh, have a role in some kind of sales position, uh, I have heard Christians specifically say one of the key factors in determining a local church to participate in is what kind of relationships that church would provide that can be beneficial in terms of business, right? Um, now, on one hand, I get that, right? I mean, it's, it's not that that uh, is necessarily the, a, a, an evil pursuit, but if that is one of the primary reasons of our choosing of a local church, we have to step back and ask the question, is that, is that utilizing godliness, right, the context of a local church, in a way that pursues selfish gain? That's, that's just a good, honest question we have to ask. And so I don't know why the Lord kept leading me to that specific example. I don't know who in the room uh, needs to hear that or somebody online. But, um, but just being mindful of that, man, uh, our godliness is, is in we pursue godliness because we want to honor God in our life. And, and the first question of a local church context is, Lord, where do you want me? Uh, not so that I can gain, but so that I can give. Um, and I'm, by giving, I'm not saying just financially. I'm saying, by, you know, Scripture clearly tells us, God has equipped each of us with a spiritual gift 
that, that is designed to be used to build up the body of Christ, right? So, so your first question is, Lord, where would you have us to be so that we can, we can be part of what is happening and, and, and how you've gifted us in the relationships so that we can build one another up? Uh, that's, that's the primary pursuit. So Paul says the, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Um, that's an often misquoted verse. It's not that money is the issue, right? Money itself is not the problem. It's the love of money. Having money is not the sin. Loving money is the sin. And so we examine our hearts in this. Do I love money? Um, again, self, I, I try to contemplate every message before I share it with you. So I'm, I'm sitting there this week thinking to myself, well, how, how, what are some signs that, that, that do I love money? Uh, and so things like this, like do I find that you're never satisfied? Do you, do you find you're never satisfied with what you have? Um, do you live with a fear of losing it, right? If you live with a fear of losing your money, it could be a sign that you love money. Uh, if you're not generous, like giving in a way that it hurts, the word tells us it's never about the amount you give, friend. It's about the heart. Some give a little out of their poverty, and the scripture tells us that's of far greater worth than the one who gives even more, but out of their wealth, right? So it's the heart. Um, if you're not generous, regardless of how much you have, uh, you might be one who loves money. Um, so just things like that that we have to grapple with when we're confronted with these kind of truths. It's love of money that's the root of all kinds of evils. Why? Because that, that love of money will lead us down all kinds of action that is not honoring to God. And you're well aware of what those things may be. Um, I love what he says so plainly and simply. You, you didn't bring anything out of this world or into this world and you can't take anything out, right? So uh, let's not spend our lives... Uh, in pursuit of it because we can't take it with us. Um, one of the things I'll say often at graveside with families is, um, you know, what we don't see here is a U-Haul trailer, you know, with this person's stuff and belongings in it. What we see here present are people, right? People, relationships. That's the value in life. And you honor others in, in that life. Um, so we have to keep bringing ourselves and others back to the truth of the gospel. Why? Because it's humbling, right? It's humbling. It's humbling to recognize our condition as sinners who hopefully for you have been redeemed and saved by God's grace and his mercy. And uh, you have relationship with Christ only because of God's grace and mercy. So we keep bringing ourselves back to that. Everything that we have comes from him. Everything that we possess comes from him, right? Uh, in Deuteronomy chapter 8, after God freed the Israelites out of captivity in Egypt, he gave them a stern warning, and he said, listen, when you get into the promised land, here's what you have to remember, right? Because you're going to be tempted to forget. God, who made us, knows us so well, right? 
And when you get into the land and you have the plenty and you have the, the, you know, the land flowing with milk and honey and all of that, my provision for you, you're going to be tempted to forget that I am the one who delivered you and that I am the one who even gives you the ability to think and to reason and to do what you do, right? We do what we do only because God has granted that to us by his grace and his mercy. So, so let's be careful when we have success and when God grants to us blessing in life that we don't forget who it all comes from. So bringing ourselves constantly back to the truth of the gospel. Um, and in that, uh, pursue godliness because you desire to represent God well. Um, that's, that's kind of the end goal here of, of the message. Pursue godliness because you, you desire to represent God well on earth. And also pursue godliness with awareness that any gain you receive is purely a blessing of God's grace. Amen? And uh, so... May we honor one another well. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a challenging theme throughout uh, this study, and we have it yet again, of thinking outside of our Sunday contexts, our, our Monday to Saturday contexts, um, closing that gap, realizing our worship of God doesn't just take place here on a Sunday, but it takes place every day in how you honor those around you. Let's pray. Father, as we think about these things, may your spirit give to us wisdom. May you guide us, uh, strengthen us, help us. Um, Lord, I believe your word is truth and you guide us in it. It's transforming. And so today, Lord, whatever we need of this that we've talked about, I pray that your Holy Spirit, again, would be our true teacher and um, that you would help us to continue growing in Christ Jesus to live in such a way in all areas of life that is honoring to you and honoring to each other. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.